to see people become more functional versions of themselves, that to me is the best part of the job. Some sessions are really heavy, really intense. Some are really enjoyable. There are times that I'm laughing a lot. There are times that I'm crying. But the whole time, I need to always be reminded that I am super focused on the person that's in front of me. This is their time, and I am being hired to support them in what they need me to support them in. We don't fix people. We help them heal. And if that's something that you're passionate about, then this field is for you. This is Career Forum. I'm Figi Barth, Director of Development for Sarah Schneer Institute. Choosing a career path can be so challenging. So many questions, so many things to think about. Who do you turn to for reliable information? Where do you go to hear about the experiences of others? Fortunately, you're in the right place, because here on Career Forum, we have answers. Get ready to hear from top professionals who will share their journeys with you and give you a candid inside look into the many aspects of their fields. This is knowledge you won't find anywhere else. So many people dream of impacting others' lives, and some are fortunate enough to turn that passion into a career. Our next guest, Rebecca Jeraslam, is a licensed clinical social worker, an LCSW, with a thriving private practice for children and adolescents in the Five Towns, New York. But unlike many social workers, Rebecca was not gunning for private practice the minute she graduated. Getting to where she is now was a journey fraught with opportunities, growth, and learning more about herself and the field of social work. Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us today on Career Forum. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me. So before we go back and take a look at your past, can you give me a super brief snapshot of what you're currently doing in the field of social work? We'll get to the details later, but just to get a sense of who I'm speaking with. Sure. So currently I run a private practice in Cedarhurst, New York. In our practice, we treat children, teenagers, young adults, even some adults. I have a bunch of clinicians that work here at my practice who are all phenomenal. We do a lot of teamwork. We work with families. We work with all different types of presenting problems or issues or dynamics. We work closely with the schools, pediatricians, and we're just looking to support our community and further the health of everyone around us. So like I said, we're all very curious to hear more about that, and we're going to get to that later. But I'd love to go back, and if you could give me some background and tell me, where were you born and raised? I was born and raised in Woodmere, New York, where I currently live now as well. Made a few stops along the way, but back to where I was born, raised. There are certain personality types and profiles that we sometimes associate with therapists. Were you that kid who was always a sounding board for her friends' problems? Did you find as a child that you naturally took on that kind of role? Such a good question because I find now when I'm working with teens, a lot of teenagers will say, I'm going to be a therapist. I'm already my friend's therapist. And I always say, you're going to be an amazing therapist because you care. That's the main piece to care. I was not that as a child, but I always had a deep connection with people. So the people that I was close to, friends or family, any age across the board, be it in camp, grandparents, I always had a very close connection to people that I was close with. I didn't assume that I was going to be a therapist. That being the case, when did you start thinking about a career in social work? At what point in your trajectory did your interest spark in this specific field? I think I was in college. I I was in Queens College 
I went for sociology and psychology already. Then I knew I was interested in people. I knew I wasn't interested in other fields like being a lawyer, a doctor, an OT or a PT, which is what most of my friends are going for. So I said, let me take these courses and see where it takes me. Um, I also was very into following my teachers who were giving trainings. So if any of my teachers from or professors were giving trainings, you can always get a student discount. It's good to know. And I would follow them and just hear. I always loved learning. And slowly but surely, I felt like this was the right path for me. Although I wasn't sure what exactly I wanted to do within the social work field, I knew that it was very broad and that was exciting for me because I thought, okay, I don't have to know exactly what I want to do, but there's opportunity to care, which is important and to connect, which also is important to me. So you said that you were in the middle of your undergraduate when you started discovering this field. So what was your degree in? It was in psychology? I got my BA in sociology and psychology. Sociology is the study of people and psychology is the study well, of psychology, understanding what's going on in the brain and everything that comes along with that. Okay. So once you started discovering that you wanted a field where you can care, where you can connect, and you started, you know, thinking about social work, what was the next step for you in terms of higher learning? Okay, so at that point, I imagine many people can relate to this. I wasn't sure if I should go into psychology or social work. And both are amazing fields. So I went to speak to a social worker and I went to speak to a psychologist and I said, let me hear about everyone's field. I didn't know yet where my life was going to lead me. I wasn't married yet. I, you know, everyone's like, if I do this and it's only two years and then I could get married, but I was very realistic. I don't know what life is going to bring me. So I need to just kind of go with where I'm at. So I decided to do social work because I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And I didn't think I wanted to necessarily to clinical private practice. And I felt social work would have broader opportunity for me. I could work in a nursing home. I could work in a hospital. I could work in a school. I could work in private practice. I could work in so many different fields, but I knew that I could care and connect. So I went with that. So it sounds like you appreciated the breadth that social work lended you versus psychology, which is a little bit more specific to the clinical setting. Is that right? That was my understanding of it. So yeah. Okay, so where did you go for that graduate degree in social work? And, you know, could you tell us just more about that schooling experience? Sure. So I graduated from Queens College and then I had six months off because, you know, you can kind of get these credits from Israel and do things really quickly and do summer program and finish undergrad quickly. And in that time I got, I think I got engaged and married. And then I went to NYU, New York University School of Social, Silver School of Social Work. It was a really awesome experience. I went with a good friend of mine. We took the train every week together and it was a two-year program, you know, in person before the times of all this Zoom. And it was a very dynamic group of people in our, I don't know if we call them cohorts, but in our grade, I don't know what it was referred to. And um, I really learned a lot. We had a lot of classes. And then we also had an internship in that program where you were working. I think it was three days a week you were working as well. So could you tell us more about, you know, where you were placed and what kinds of things you were doing at that point? So while you're in school, so you're in school one or two days a week, it depends on your schedule. So the first year I went in two days a week, like a regular schedule, it was probably like nine to four, 10 to five type of thing. And the second year I, I had moved to Long Beach and I was commuting from Long Beach on the train and it's a little bit longer. So I decided I'm going to just go in one day, like nine to nine. And I packed in all my classes. I learned exactly how many minutes I needed to get from the subway to the kosher <laughs> food back on the subway within the 30 minute break that they give us. But it, you know, it was a really nice experience. And then the other days you're working in an internship. So NYU at that time placed you in your internships. So my first internship, 
was in a clinic in Farakwe, not at all associated with Jews or our culture in any way. And I learned a lot in many different areas in the area of mental health. It was a mental health clinic, um, severe, severe mental health. The most important thing in any internship is your supervisor. So if you don't have access to a proper supervisor to make sure that your school can support you in that or to switch things up if you can. It's very hard to switch up internships. That's something that the school takes very seriously, but supervision is very key, especially in in any field, but especially if you're placed in a mental health clinic type of setting. So that was a really, really good experience. My second internship was in a yeshiva high school, which was, you know, you can't see, but I'm smiling as I say it because it, it gets you to go back to kind of where you came from. And it's a little bit more of a, this comfortable feeling, but having gone after working in a mental health clinic, it also gave me an appreciation for knowing that I was there as a social work intern, as opposed to just being there. Cause it, it feels so, you know, warm and fuzzy to be back in a high school. That was really nice. And then I did an internship in the JCC in the five towns, not in their preschool, which most people know them for, which is an amazing preschool, but they have also a facility. And I did a lot of work with group work with bereaved widows and grief work, traumatic brain injury groups. I ran a lot of groups and then they also give you a few clients and with excellent supervision as well. I'm just taken by the fact that your very first experience, you know, while you're still in school is in a severe mental health clinic. So how was that for you? Like, what were your feelings walking in the first day? Can you tell me just more about how you were dealing with this very new experience? The first day was great because I'm like, wow, I am walking into a mental health clinic. Like this is what social work is. And then the second day wasn't as great because I was (laughs) like, oh my goodness, I am learning about things that I really never knew about and you don't learn about in classes. So we learn about suicidality and we learn about depression, but then you have a client that walks in and shares such an extreme situation and you want to tell them, don't share this with me. I really don't know anything yet. You know, I just took a couple of classes. It's October and I just started six weeks ago. And that's where supervision comes in. When you're an intern in a mental health clinic, they throw everything at you, but you're also the lowest on that totem pole. So you're also being asked to grab the coffee or make more intake but we can learn from everything as a social worker, any, anyone in any field. Like when I'm making photocopies, I'm looking at what the photocopies are with their permission. And I'm seeing this is all part of the process. And even now in my private practice, I just spent, you know, 15 minutes before this session, I spent printing out new intake forms, stapling them together, putting them in the envelopes. Like I know what an intake form looks like. I know how to do that all because of the process that I started in. But it was a lot. I relied heavily, heavily on my supervisor. There were some really hard moments there, but overall it was definitely a learning experience. I made a very good friend from outside of our culture and we depended on each other a lot. We were both interns and we worked through it. It wasn't easy. I'm not going to say, you know, my other internships were definitely easier and more comfortable, but I am who I am today because of that experience. You mentioned supervision a few times that it's like a key piece. So I want to just go into this for a second. How does supervision look in real time? What what exactly is going on? How often are you having supervision? And what are some of the things that you're discussing? So supervision as an intern, what it's supposed to look like is once a week, you're supposed to meet with your supervisor, probably for an hour, I would say 45 minutes to an hour and review anything related to the field. So your cases any care management that needs to be done for your cases, but also all your feelings related to what you're experiencing in the field. 
And I didn't mention like paperwork help, learning the system, you know, every internship and every job has its own system on the, uh, how to do notes and billing and all that stuff. And you learn that from your supervisor. But most importantly is reviewing all the cases so that you're making sure you're treating them properly and really, really reviewing how you are feeling about the cases. They do something, I'm sure they still do this. You know, I went to school many years ago, but called process recordings where you type word for word what you're doing in a session and then you review it with your supervisor. But then there's a column where you can put in what you were feeling about what they said or what you said. It is so significant. They are sometimes a bit annoying, but they are such a fabulous way to learn because 15 years now into the field, Every now and then I want to do a process recording and just figure out how I was feeling when a client said this or when I said this and maybe I shouldn't have and I have to repair that at the next session. It's all about showing up for your client. So if you can learn that from your supervisor early on, that's how we learn hands-on. In the classroom, you're learning a lot of what's going on in the brain. You want to learn about different medications, different interventions, but the learning of how your client in front of you is reacting and how you're reacting, that comes from proper supervision. And I would imagine it's a learning curve to just even learn how to be so self-aware and honest in that process. So that's very interesting. Thank you for sharing that. I would love now to hear more about you at this stage. So let's move on now to your life. You're finished your undergraduate degree. You're finished your graduate degree, fresh kind of off the boat. And where are you holding in life right now? I graduate. When you graduate, you take a test that gives you your license. You graduate with something called an MSW, your master in social work, and you need to take an exam that allows you to work. It's called your licensing exam. Then you have an LMSW. I suggest that everyone take it as soon as they graduate when all the information is still fresh. A lot of the information has to do with things that you learned in school or cases, but you usually learn. It's a lot of ethics questions. So take that right away. So I took... um, like a month to study for that. I would. I was living in Queens and I would go to the Queens College Library and I would study. At that point, I had a baby, so I had someone watching her and I would go for like four hours a day, study, and then I took my exam like maybe two months after I graduated and then I found a job. And I started working at the JCC actually where one of my internships was. So I worked there for a couple of months. That was really nice. I continued doing a lot of the things that I was doing during my internship, but I was started to be paid for it. And then I switched over to the Jewish board, JBFCS, Jewish Board Family Children's Services, which is a great clinic, a mental health clinic. We have OHEL, we have Jewish Board. They're great places for social workers to start. They include supervision, which again is so significant, and they give you your caseload. Uh, I started working there, but I knew that I really was very interested at that point at working in a school. I had really liked my internship in a school. I loved the collaboration piece. Teachers, principals, everyone really cared about the students. I knew I wanted to work in a school, so I asked Jewish Board if they had any opportunities in schools. And they were able to place me in two different schools Brooklyn. Once a week, I was based in one school in Brooklyn in Flatbush, and another day I was placed in a school in Crown Heights, and I kind of set up shop there. One of the schools I was doing individual sessions, and the other one I was teaching and doing kind of a lot of group work with the girls. I did a lot of workshops for the, the girls that were applying to seminary. I created a rejection workshop to start to understand the concept of not everything always works out the way we want it to. And just raising the awareness of mental health in these schools. And then the other days I was working in their clinics, seeing clients. So what age students, meaning was this an elementary school, high school? Uh, One school is based Rifka in Crown Heights, great school. So it was one through 12, basically. I saw clients of all ages, but the workshops that I did were mostly for the older girls. I would say eighth grade and up. 
And the other school was at Teratora, a Serum-based Yaakov school in Flatbush, and that was a high school. And these workshops that you were giving, were you creating the material that you were giving over? Was the school giving it to you? They just gave me the topic and I created the material. It's funny. I was looking through a bunch of folders the other night for a paper that I needed for some document. I don't know. And I found all my workshops and I told my kids, I was like, guys, these like in the olden days, like they're printed and my notes are on the side (laughs) of them and they're different colors to cue when I needed to bring in like a prop that I needed. I said, I'm putting these in. I asked my girls, I said, could you guys give me those plastic sleeves? I'm going to put them in plastic sleeves and save them. But yeah, that was part of me really learning and getting into the field, finding sources for things, looking up other therapists, reaching out to other therapists. And I created these workshops and it was a really awesome learning experience. So after this experience in these two schools, where did you go from there? So then I was loving working in the schools and I decided to leave the Jewish board after a few years and I got a job through the Lawrence School District and I was working in Hafter Elementary School. And that was a really, really nice experience. I actually had, my nieces were in the school at the time, so it was really nice and I was able to bring some of my kids to the school, to their preschool as well. It was a really nice environment. It was great collaboration. There was a school psychologist that I was able to work closely with and it was an interesting type of job because you're working only with students who have IEPs. So those are individualized education plans through the district when a child needs extra support. They could be getting speech therapy, occupational therapy, physical therapy, and sometimes they get counseling. When they got counseling, I was the one to provide the counseling. School-based counseling looks very different than private practice counseling. School-based counseling, which was really nice and enjoyable, is just to really make sure that the child is able to transition from the classroom to where they need to be. So from my office to the classroom, if there's something that's going on for them in school, I can help them with that. If there's something going on outside of school, we use usually recommend outside therapy in addition if they're struggling with something in their family. But if it's something that they're struggling and they're mostly functioning in school, they just need a little support, that's what school-based counseling is for. Sometimes social skills, social cues, pragmatics, we could work with the speech therapist for that. And then in addition, you also do a lot of observations and evaluations and assessments in order to provide information for their upcoming meetings that they have every year. So it sounds like because you're dealing more with issues that are very much based in school, did you find this to be a little bit lighter than some of the other things you were doing until this point? That's a great question. It was lighter in a lot of ways. It was lighter in terms of the workload because even though you knew that some of your students were coming in with real heaviness and pain, you weren't, I don't want to say you weren't allowed to work on that, but that wasn't the point of what school-based counseling is. So to work on those heavy things during the school day in their school actually is not beneficial to them when you're bringing them back to their classroom right after. So it's definitely lighter because they want to get better. They want to be able to pick up on those social cues and go back into the classroom and realize, oh, it's not that he didn't want to play with me. It's just that someone had a different snack and that was more exciting, right? So they're not not important and not significant. They're actually crucial to these children. It's just not so heavy. The other thing just in terms of people that are interested in going into school social work, it did give me a little bit more wiggle room in terms of being able to show up for my own family. So when I was working within the day, there are a certain amount of hours that you're supposed to work. And if I needed to leave for you know, a performance for one of my kids, I was able to come in early that day as long as students were there and make up the work. Not at all in, to take advantage of the time, but it was to see your students on your caseload you can do within the week if they were mandated for one or two times. And then to be able to get all your assessments and notes and parent calling done as well. Once you're in the school, obviously every minute of the day isn't on the caseload, but you are also supposed to act as 
a provider in terms of working with teachers, collaborating with teachers, helping them understand. And that was a part of the job that I really enjoyed. Okay, so now moving along to your next foray, because it sounds like you really did enjoy these school experiences. So I'm curious, what prompted you, because we know, you know, from the beginning that you mentioned that now you're in private practice, so you didn't stay in a school. So what, you know, what was kind of your next step on your journey? Okay, so this is where it gets a little fun. So I was working in Hafter and I was so happy. I had no intentions of going anywhere else. I was off in the summer and my family went upstate to camp for the summer and I was leaving two days early because I was signed up for a training and it was face-to-face again before the time of Zoom and I needed to show up in Cedarhurst for the training. So I left camp two days early with my youngest at the time. Um, I think he was one. I brought him home to the babysitter and I went to this training for two days. In social work, you need to have CEs, continued education credits, and this was going to help me with that. So I signed up. A friend showed me. It was, um, I think it was a, a basic like play therapy introduction by Dr. Sarah Glass, and it was phenomenal. She now has a thriving private practice in Manhattan. And I went to the training. It was so great. After the two days, I had emailed someone that worked there and just said, this was so great. I learned so much. Do you know she's looking to hire anyone? I know that she had associates who were working under her. And I wasn't even sure I was looking for it, but it was just so intriguing learning about it that I wanted to get to know her better and her practice model. So we like went back and forth a few times with the secretary and then, and then she's like, you know what, come in and meet her. So I came in, I met her and she, after a whole bunch of different meetings decided, yeah, okay, why don't you come on to our team? In a very slow way, I was working full time in Hafter. I took on, you know, a few cases and then I worked both jobs for two years. So I was working from nine to three and a half there. And then I was working in a private practice under someone else from three to nine, two nights a week and on Sunday mornings. Once I was able to calculate what made sense for me financially to be able to stay on as someone's associate and leave the school work, then I was able to slowly transition into one job. So for two years, it was pretty intense because I was working these two, like this job and a half. And I worked really hard and I asked for a lot of help from the people around me to help with my kids at night and to help me be able to maintain two jobs with hopes that this is something that I really wanted to pursue. Now, again, I didn't know that I wanted to do private practice until I landed in her training and saw how much it spoke to me. That's very interesting because like so many people who go into the field of social work, they're going for that straight away. They know that they want to end up there. And it's so interesting how it kind of for you was the opposite. In the beginning, you mentioned that you actually had this experience, you know, in with the agency where you were doing more of that type of work and you specifically wanted a school. And then it kind of landed in your lap. So it's interesting how you can get to the same place in so many different ways. And I also am struck by the your bravery and, you know, reaching out to this professional who gave the training and asking if you could work for her. Was that typical of you? You were that type to, you know, to be brave and reach out like that? So I think it follows what I said before, how I used to follow my professors for their trainings. I really... I'm intrigued by people. I'm intrigued by what they share, what they've learned, how they connect to people. And this was another example of I'm intrigued by your process and I'm intrigued by what you're running to help our community. And I would love to, I'm not sure if I want to be involved in it, but I would love to learn more about it. So I guess it's my thirst for the knowledge and for understanding where people come from, which I guess makes me into a social worker, (laughs) right? That really pushed me to do. So yeah, I I would say I'm a confident person. It wasn't so vulnerable because I had nothing to lose. The intent was, can I learn more? Now you also mentioned that you had to do these nights in that interim period where you're working at Hafter 
still and you're, you know, you're kind of transitioning into this private practice world. So it sounds like that really was a sacrifice for you. And it was something that I'm sure was felt by your family. So I'm wondering, is this something that's kind of par for the course? Somebody who's looking to enter the field of social work, can they expect that they might have to do these kinds of things and, you know, be juggling a lot of balls while trying to build themselves up? I want to say 100% yes, whether it be in a clinic or if it's in someone's private practice. In today's day and age, there's definitely more opportunity than when I was starting to join someone's private practice. You know, there's a, there are a lot of private practices open in, in all areas, in the tri-state area, at least for sure, you know, in Israel as well. And many of them do hire on what's called an associate who works under them, who gets supervision from them who comes in as an LMSW and is working under someone who is an LCSW. I could explain more later or now, but you need to have a certain amount of hours. So you have to work under someone else's practice in order to get your own clinical license. When you start working in someone else's practice, most people can't go to therapy in the middle of the day, especially if you're working with children or teens because they're in school from eight to five. So in order to build up your name, you usually have to sacrifice by working at nights, I would say 4 p.m. and on or Sundays to fill up your caseload. Once you fill up your caseload, you have a little bit more wiggle room if you have a reputation and a name and someone's willing to come in the middle of the day if they can come out of school or if they could Zoom or if they're an adult and they can make it their lunch break. But most therapists at some point, and many super seasoned therapists still work at nights because that's when people can go to therapy. But yes, at some point, you do need to work evenings and Sundays. And it is a sacrifice. You know, I remember being pregnant with my fourth and going from Hafter at 3 p.m. And I think I started at 3.20 at the practice. So I quickly went to the pizza store. I ordered myself a slice of pizza and a tomato soup. And I ate that. And then I quickly went to the practice till 9 p.m. And then I came home and, you know, all your kids are sleeping. And But that's okay because you do feel like you're working towards something. The main thing here is if you don't feel like you're working towards something, then it's not for you. If you feel like you're working towards something, then you're making the right choice as long as you have the right support set up, whether it's a babysitter, whether it's a parent, whether it's a cousin or an aunt or a sibling or your spouse, whoever can be home. And we had shifts. I I used to have a whole schedule on the fridge. Who's coming? If it works, it doesn't work for everyone. And then it's harder. I would imagine in the same vein that something like this can only be done if you really have the total support of your spouse, if you're married at that point, because it becomes a whole family project, it sounds like. Yeah. So your spouse has to be super on board. So my husband is definitely still to this day very much on board. You know, even when the kids have vacation, we pick certain days that are harder to take off for each of us. And then we, we are able to say, okay, I got Wednesday and you got Thursday. And, but in those times, he did everything he could. He was also early in his career, so he couldn't give up so much either. So God bless my mother. She came two nights a week and was able to relieve my babysitter and then feed my kids dinner and everyone was bathed. And then my husband would come home and do bedtime. And we had a whole system in place. I remember after the two years, I said, I have to buy my mother something. So I went, I bought her what I thought was like this beautiful heart necklace. (laughs) Now I look back and I was like, oh my gosh, I wish I would have gotten more because she gave me so much and she really helped me build up myself and my career and my profession, but you definitely need the support. So because you were kind of working under this professional, did you have to market yourself? Is that a piece of this? Meaning to have the confidence to go out on your own and then also to build up that name. How did you do it? And what's kind of the norm in terms of building yourself up? Great question and great distinction. So I'll tell you first how 
I did it and then let's go back to the norm because that's a really good question. So in the practice that I worked in, Dr. Glass took care of all of the networking and all of the client referrals. At some point, a couple of years, maybe two years in, it was time for us to start networking on our own. Not because she didn't want to or she wasn't able to, but because she wanted us to learn that skill. So in the beginning, she gave us her, I guess it was really her overload of clients, right? That's the point of hiring on associates. And then we started, because I mostly was working with children, you start building connections with schools. I will say that something I appreciate about having worked first in other jobs is that I really understood the concept of the picture is bigger than just the child. There's a school, there's a family. I find sometimes when certain professionals maybe come in and haven't had those experiences, either come in straight from school or come in from just working in private practice, they actually have to learn that from other associates or from your supervisor. So I was able to appreciate that and start building relationships with the schools. Something that we did in our practice at the time was a lot of student school meetings where the parents came in and the therapists came in and we all collaborated together. Once you start building connections with schools, you become a name to them. If they are happy with the work you're doing or if they appreciate what you share with them or if you get along with them well, they want to send you other clients. So naturally, you start building connections on your own. We speak to pediatricians a lot and that's also a good networking opportunity. So that for me was taken care of. That's the type of practice that I joined. I run my practice in a similar way today where I give all the referrals to my associates. However, I of course welcome any networking that they want to do and any referrals that they get on their own. And it's always such a good feeling for them and for me to see that they got a referral from a different client or someone wants to bring a different child or someone's coming back after three or four years. What a good feeling that the therapist has and that the family has. What is the norm? Every practice is different. Sometimes you join a private practice and every the norm is different in terms of how you split the fees and what is included. Is supervision included? Is rent included? Are supplies included? Are clients referrals included? So the norm really varies. There are some practices that you join so that you work under an LCSW and, and can accrue the hours that you need to accrue in order to take the next licensing exam for your clinical license. And they don't provide the referrals and some practices provide everything. So it depends what you're looking for. I always tell people when you're looking to join a private practice, don't just interview by one. Always meet someone else because then you can see what you're comparing to and what works for you. And one is not better than the other. They're just different. So are you saying that you always recommend for somebody who's looking to build up their own private practice eventually always to start off by working under someone else in their private practice? I definitely recommend that. I benefited. I have so much Hakar Satov to my supervisor and I benefited tremendously from her and from her work and from my group. There's a group of us who worked with her and the group itself, there's three of us. We've been meeting for seven years, every Tuesday at 1130 for group supervision. And there's so much growth that has happened through that group. So I definitely recommend starting off in that way. So now I would love to hear more about your private practice, kind of getting more into the nitty gritty. So first of all, what ages are you working with? I know you mentioned it briefly at the beginning, but if you could go more into the ages and the kinds of challenges that your clients are dealing with. In our practice overall, we see from, I would say ages four and up. I personally mostly work at this point with teens and young adults. A lot of my colleagues in my practice work with preschool, elementary school, middle school, high school. Most of the presenting problems that are coming in are anxiety, depression, some OCD, family crisis, social skills. There are often underlying traumas found under a lot of the anxiety and depression. And often not, we live in a, in a crazier world than we did before and people are reacting. There's also a beauty in therapy not being taboo anymore. And 
people appreciating and valuing the space for them to work through either things that have happened in their past or things that are going on for them right now. So that's mostly what we do here. We do a lot for the children. We do a lot of play therapy, sand therapy, art therapy. All my therapists are trained in those areas. And then I'm a big believer in every therapist should get one training each year. So it doesn't always need to be a huge, big training. It can be a small, you know, two-day course, but everyone should do something each year because the field is changing. And not just because the field is changing, people are changing. We're changing. I'm not the same therapist that I was 15 years ago, but I'm definitely not the same therapist that I even was five years ago or two years ago. My life experience has made me different and what I've learned in the field and my what I've learned from my clients has made me different as well. What are your feelings about somebody very young going straight into this field? Because you were young when you chose it, but because of your schooling experiences and then your internships leading you into those other experiences and schools, you really didn't go straight into the very heavy type of social work. So what are your feelings about starting young versus maybe waiting and gaining some of this life experiences? Because as you said, a person is ever evolving and changing and maturing as the years go by. I think it's okay for people to go in very young. I'm a big believer in everyone has to start somewhere but I'm going to go back to supervision. If you want to go straight into private practice, you must make sure that it is a supervisor who is going to support you and understand you and also help you move along in the field. I usually don't work with people who are straight out of school. I definitely would recommend getting some experience in a clinic if you know for sure that you want to do private practice and then joining someone's private practice maybe while you're doing that. But I would recommend trainings and continued education while staying in the field. I think that it is hard to come into private practice. People are maybe more hesitant. Oh, she's so young or he's so young. You know, I remember hitting that mark. It wasn't so long ago when I said, I think I'm not that young therapist anymore, (laughs) even though I still identify as 22. But, and it gave me a sense of, First, I said, oh, no, like, what if people don't want to come anymore because I'm not that young, you know, cool therapist? And then I said, oh, it also comes along with the, you know, the experience gives you something, too. But I'm okay with people starting off young as long as they're in super solid supervision. Remember, people are only going to other people's associates because they can't go to that therapist themselves. So as long as they have good supervision and a good name under a good therapist, I'm sure that they could thrive. I've seen it. How are you able to kind of still keep that? optimism alive in you on this journey, even till now, while still kind of holding space for the fact that what you're doing on a day-to-day basis can sometimes be very heavy. So this actually is a great question for right after your first question of, can you go into this very young? So I think that, let me just go back to the very young point. After graduating, you have a lot of knowledge, but you don't necessarily know how to apply all the knowledge because you haven't seen everything. So of course, with age, you see more. It doesn't mean that you can't do it. It just means that you have to be so invested in the learning how to apply it and to understand. So that's one part of going in young. But there is so much pain and hardship in our lives, in our community's lives. And there's a pediatrician in the community that I work closely with. I have a very good relationship with him. He treats my children as well. And he said to me, you know, Rebecca, I have the same dream that we should be out of jobs. Everyone should be healthy physically and everyone should be healthy emotionally. It's, it's heavy. It's pain. And because I care and because I connect, it hurts me. The pain is really hard. So any therapist needs to have an outlet. 
the first outlet that I'm going to go back to is supervision. You must have an outlet where you can get out professionally what is going on for you and what is going on for your client. And then you have to figure out personally what works for you and your family. So there are days that I leave the job and I finish at 2.40 and carpool pickup is 2.45 and I'm there and I said, I need to disconnect from work in order to be there for my kids that I'm picking up. And you find ways to do that. You know, when I was commuting, when I was living in Queens and commuting to the five towns, I had 30 minutes to do that. And that was a bracha in and of itself. Now I don't have that. I work very close to my kids' school. I work very close to my home. I could walk to either basically. Um, but you find ways. And there are days when I get home and, and I need to go for another run, even if I already went for a run that day. Or there's a day when I, you know, my kids know, okay, mommy needs to just go and take a shower or cook dinner with my AirPods in. And you need to find a way to make it take less than 10 minutes when you have your kids around. And every day shouldn't feel like that because if every day feels like that, then we're having a problem. But there shouldn't be a week that goes by that you don't feel like that because you, when you feel like that, it reminds you, and my supervisor shared this with me, you still have your heart. Your heart is still so full and so big. And we are affected by the people around us and the pain that they carry. So you mentioned you know, that you need an outlet. And you keep going back to the supervision piece. So I think that this is a, a very important piece to emphasize. Aside from the supervision, what are your thoughts about actually being in therapy in this profession? Do you think that it's a must for every therapist to also be in therapy themselves? The must to me is that you must be open to being in therapy at various points of your life and of your career. If you are saying, no, I don't need therapy. I'm a therapist myself. I have friends that are therapists. I do supervision. No way. I do not believe that you have to be in therapy consistently weekly for the next 50 years. <laughs> I don't feel comfortable saying that, but I do feel very comfortable saying you must have someone on your phone that you can call and say, Hey, I need to come in for a couple of appointments or that you do need to be in therapy for a couple of years while you figure things out. It must be something that feels comfortable for you. That's my recommendation. So while you're on that topic, I'm just wondering what you think are some of the most important traits or skills what makes a person suited for this field? It almost reminds me of the question when someone comes to me and they say, can you help me find a therapist? So I'll say, sure, tell me what you're looking for, right? It's almost, it reminds me of Shadachim just a bit, but <laughs> I don't know because I've seen therapists with such different personalities and, and they're all so good and they work so well for certain people and not for other people. And that doesn't mean they're not a good therapist. It's really like a Shadach and it has to work for you. And a big thing that's important to know is that if you're seeing a therapist and it doesn't feel like it's working for you, then it's not. And then find another one. If you care about people and you like to connect to people and you want to help them understand more about themselves, we don't fix people, we help them heal. And if that's something that you're passionate about, then this field is for you. So it's really, it's almost simple when you say it like that, meaning it's not, but it's almost like the raw material needs to be there in that care, in that desire to help people grow and to help people heal. But like you said, and I think that this is an interesting piece, which I never thought about, I guess that raw material can play itself out in so many different forms in different types of therapists. I guess you could have, you know, therapists that are different personalities, like you said, maybe some were introverted, some were extroverted. Like it's not a one size fits all. Is that what you're saying? Like that you need to have that passion. A hundred percent. And you also have to know what you're looking for in a therapist. You might be looking for someone a bit more outgoing or someone a bit on the quieter, more introspective. And all of these, it's kind of like you said, this is the easy stuff, the real work that's done. I won't pretend that it's not heavy. It's very, very heavy. If you set yourself up in the right way and you went in with the right intentions, then you will be a great provider for the people around you. So now going, moving back to what you actually do, I would love to 
unpack what your day looks like. Can you give me, you know, the full, and I want to hear everything from the front end of the actual, you know, your sessions with your clients to the back end. You mentioned things like billing and invoice and intake. So I would love to hear the nitty gritties so that someone listening can really get a sense of what your day looks like. So in private practice, let's take just a case. So it starts with a phone call. You get a phone call from either a parent or someone looking for a therapist. And as most therapists, we do not pick up numbers that we don't know. And we listen to the voicemail and we'll call them back. Sometimes I'll text them back if I know I can't call them till the next day, just letting you know I got your message. Sometimes I'll let them know that unfortunately I don't have any availability if that's the case, or I'll say I'm looking forward to speaking to you tomorrow. I'm a believer in calling people back within 24 hours. And then we speak for maybe five or 10 minutes on the phone. And then we set up an intake and intake is when the child that's coming in is under 18. So the parents will come in, parent or parents, depending on the situation, will come in without the child, usually for 50 minutes to an hour to share a lot about the background, family dynamic, family history, emotional, psychological history, sharing anything that goes with that, where we also discuss billing and appointments and all the logistics. And then we set up a weekly appointment for that child to come in once a week for 45 minutes. We typically don't start with every other week sessions. When someone is coming in for treatment, we work towards being able to reduce it down to 45 minute sessions. The goal for children is not to be in therapy forever. Unless they have gone through a significant trauma or are currently going through a trauma, the goal of a child coming into therapy is working through whatever the presenting problem is, whether it's anxiety or depression or something going on in school, a social dynamic, bullying, a family crisis, and getting them to a better place where they can feel the support and now go ahead and fly on their own. I believe for children in booster sessions where they should come back in every now and then and just review the skills that they've learned, uh, meet with a the therapist. If something else is going on, they have that safe place. But the goal of therapy for children is not to stay forever. And even for adults, we want to help them be the healthiest version of themselves. So come in, let's work through what's going on. Yes, yeah, sometimes with adults, it takes a little bit longer because there's a lot more that's been loaded on. And then let's go out into the world and thrive. So that's what it, the case typically looks like for a child. And then within my day, I, you know, I show up at work 9.15. I drop off my kids at nine. I get to work at 9.15 and I start my first client. They're 45 minute sessions. Some sessions are really heavy, really intense. Some are really enjoyable. There are times that I'm laughing a lot. There are times that I'm crying, but the whole time I need to always be reminded that I'm super focused on the person that's in front of me. This is their time and I'm being hired to support them in what they need me to support them in. If I'm working with a child or a teenager, sometimes there's information that I need to get from the parent beforehand. So I have a system set up where the parent can send me a voice note or used to be emails. Now it's turned to voice notes, you know, a certain amount of hours before. So that will ensure that I listen to it before I see their child. Now, in terms of the actual back end, things like invoice and billing, I know that these are not the fun things and people listening are like, that's not the exciting part of the field, but I would imagine that it's still a very important piece. So can you tell us more about that? Sure. So it's definitely important. And when I had joined someone else's practice, I really wasn't so aware of it because she was handling all of the billing and invoicing. We were just in charge of our notes. But once I opened up my own practice, I quickly learned that there is a lot on the back end. And I know that the amazing clinicians that work with me as my associates really appreciate that that is taken care of. So notes, every therapist should be doing no matter what. We used to do handwritten notes. Now I use a system on the computer called Therapy Notes, which you pay for. It does billing, notes, it could print invoices. It could print something called super bills, which people can send to their insurance and try to get reimbursement for. It takes a couple of hours a month to take care of the notes and all the billing and then all the billing for the people that work in my practice. 
you know, they say a picture is worth a thousand words. I feel like a story is worth 2000 words. And I would love to hear from you if you have a story. I know that your work is confidential, but if you do have a story to share that could really highlight the impact that you feel like you've had, it could be a failure. It could be a success. Just anything that you learn from any memorable experience that you've had. I wish I could share a story, but because the work is so private, I'm going to just share the emotions that I would experience from a story as opposed to an actual story. I hope that's okay. Absolutely. Sometimes when we're working, you know, we don't always feel like we're doing something because it's not always obvious the difference that we're making. Whether we're working with kids or with adults, we plant these seeds. We let them know this is a safe place to explore, to work through, to peel off the layers of everything that you've experienced. And it doesn't mean that we're going to see a depressed person all of a sudden is happy, but we're going to see that someone that came in with one problem is able to reframe their problem and still live in this world in the amazing way that they can and that they're supposed to, despite the pain that they've either experienced or that they are currently experiencing. But to see people become more functional versions of themselves, that to me is the best part of the job. You know, if this was so touching, I got um, an invitation in the mail to a bar mitzvah of a boy that I worked with when he was young. I think he was in second or third grade. So, you know, you have your bar mitzvah, you're already in seventh or eighth grade with a post-it note just saying, you were such a part of our lives. We so appreciate everything you've done. And I wasn't currently working with this young boy. It had been years. And when I saw the name, I was so touched. I don't save a lot of things. And I saved this post-it. It was so meaningful to me because I said, see, you know, I planted the seeds. I knew I was planting the seeds, but I didn't know how they were going to sprout because I wasn't working with him anymore. And to see that they felt it was significant enough to remind me of my role and that that was really touching. That's a very, very special. So what are some of the challenges that you're up against in the field, including hashkafic challenges? Over the course of our conversation, you've mentioned some. Is there anything else that you would want to share that stands out to you? Um, there are small things that could present as challenging, you know, when you work within your community. So now I work within my community. So I go to the same supermarket as a lot of the people that I work with. And you just always want to make sure that they feel comfortable that you're showing up at their supermarket. It shouldn't be about, oh my gosh, they're showing up at my supermarket. I really always try to reframe, wow, now I'm in their space. I usually start every session, the first session that I have with either the client or the parent, just saying, now that we know each other, we're going to see each other around. We're going to see each other at the local Seasons Express, and we're going to see each other at, if our kids go to the same school, and I just want you to know, I'm just going to smile like I would at any other woman that I recognize from a school event, and making sure that they feel comfortable with that and that it's not too vulnerable for them. I do create certain boundaries for myself where I try not to treat anyone from my shul. I try not to treat anyone that's from my child's grade for the most part, because you always want to reflect it back. I want my kids' friends to feel like they can come over and you can't share with your kids who you're treating. So you want to make sure that they feel like they can invite anyone over and anyone can come or um, you're not showing up at a simple Torah and someone from your shul is like, oh, I just shared so much and this is feels so vulnerable to see her here with her family. So always keeping in mind what would make other people feel comfortable and safe. So can you talk to us about the pace scale and private practice? I would love to hear, you know, kind of the range from a new therapist through a more niche experienced therapist, like the rates that you can charge. So I'll share what I know within our community here in the five towns, but changes drastically when you go in other areas like Manhattan. I would say people charge here anywhere from 150 to 350 per session. There could be other rates that I just am not aware of for a basic therapist. So if you're coming in as an associate, most associates could charge anywhere from 175 to 225 per 45 minute session. And most experienced LCSWs 
charge upwards of 200. Some are even upwards of 300. It's not salaried. So there's also always remembering that aspect of it. I try to think of it as working on a 10 month year, even if you're working 12 months a year between Yom Tovim and summers and when things change, there are benefits to working in this way. And there are benefits to working in a salaried way. I will say that when you come in as an associate, even if you are charging that 200, you're not making that, you're not bringing home that 200 because you're working under someone else's practice. So you have whatever arrangement and every associate is different. What's included again is the supervision, is the rent, are the supplies, and then what the percentage is that you're taking home. So how many years would you say it takes to getting to the higher range that you mentioned, like the upwards of 300, for example? Let me just go back for a second and compare to compare it to a job where you're working in a school or in a nursing home, I don't know what the rates are now, but when I started out working in a school, I think I was making between thirty dollars and $40,000 a year as salaried nine to three, which was considered full-time. So I was actually going to get to that soon. So thank you for answering. I, w- I wanted to hear what more of the salary types of positions would be offering in nursing homes and hospitals and things like that um, in schools. So just because we're on the subject, so you would say that anywhere from 30 to what? What would be like the higher end of a more salaried social work, you know, licensed social work position in one of those settings? I imagine now no one gets paid $30,000 <laughs> a year. <laughs> I have to like pray with my whole heart that it's over 60 by now. I just don't know. I've been now in private practice for a lot of years, so I'm not so familiar with what the pay is. But when I left the schools, I was probably getting around $40,000. But I would think it's closer to 60 now. Once somebody graduates and they have, you know, they have their degree in social work, realistically, how many years, and I would include the years of being an associate, in someone else's private practice, I would love to know what you would estimate. I know every situation is so different of the amount of years that it would take you to be able to go out on your own in a private practice. Okay. So you graduate with your MSW, then you take a test and you get your LMSW. Then if your goal is private practice, you jump straight into private practice or into a clinic. Either way, where you're doing clinical work, either in a private practice or in a clinic like OHEL or Jewish Board, something like that. And you need to work for 3,000 hours under someone with an LCSW, a licensed clinical social worker, where you're accruing both supervision and hours, a certain amount of hours of supervision and a certain amount of hours of clinical work. And then once you do that, so 3,000 hours, it usually takes three years if you're doing it straight nine to five every day. And you're paid for those hours. Yeah. And what's the pay like at that point? When I went to start accruing my hours in the clinic, I was making $30 an hour out. <laughs> yeah. $30 an hour. I think it's still the same in Jewish board. I'm not sure if it's changed. So $30 an hour, you don't get paid for doing notes or trainings or anything like that. So just $30 for the hour of seeing your client or for, for the 45 minutes. If you're in someone's private practice, you probably make closer to maybe like 85 or a hundred. Again, because in private practice, people are paying privately in clinics, they're being paid by insurance. So it's not the same pay scale. So then you accrue your 3000 hours and you study really hard for another exam and you take that exam and then you you pass and you get something called your LCSW, your licensed clinical social worker. You are a licensed clinical social worker and you can open your own practice. That's it. You can open your own practice. The question is, do you have a name out there that you can open your own practice? And do you have the reputation out there that you can open your own practice? So that's what helps about having been in someone else's practice because you start to build up your own name. But once you have your LCSW, you can open your own practice and charge what you feel comfortable charging. And at the point that you were an associate, you were an LCSW at that point, or you were still working towards that, towards those hours? When I was an associate, 
because I started off working in Jewish board and then I started working in the schools, I wasn't accruing hours when I was working in the school because it's not the job that I had wasn't in a clinical setting. Some people can accrue hours in a school. You just have to make sure that the supervision is aligned with that. Mine wasn't. So I had to restart my hours because it has to be done in a certain amount of years. And it wasn't my goal to be in private practice. So I wasn't rushing to get my C. It's called your C, your clinical license. So once I started as an associate, I started reaccruing my hours and I accrued them and I was an associate and I took my exam and I passed. But by default, my practice kind of dissipated and our clinical director went to open a practice in Manhattan. And we, at that point, all had our C's. So we all opened our own practices because we had enough of a name and a reputation at that point. So you've mentioned some kids, a family over the course of this conversation. Can you tell us about, you know, kind of like, how do you find that this field meshes with your role as a wife, as a mother, and just a from Jewish woman? My schedule today, 15 years in the field, looks very different than it did over the last 15 years. I'm able to show up first as a mother and a wife and then as a social worker, which is amazing. Most people that know me know that my job is really, really important to me and that the people that I have relationships with, it's like family. I feel so close to the people that I work with. I am able to work between nine and three every day and I don't need to work on weekends anymore. So that allows me to show up for my family. And now that my children are getting older, I find it's really important for me to be home in the evenings. When they were younger, I'm grateful to all the people who supported me that I was able to go to work. And my kids really support me in my field. I bring them a lot to the office, you know, when no one's here to kind of see where I'm working. I think that's really important for them to have an idea of, okay, mommy's not home, but she's here. They know that I'm helping people and supporting people. And that's what it looks like today. But If I could give any advice, if you are working nights or weekends, always tell your kids where you are. Let them come. I tell my associates all the time, please bring your kids when there's no one in the office. Let them play in the sand tray. Let them take a prize. Let them see that where you are is a real place and explain to them the things you're doing, obviously, with intense confidentiality. Was that something that you found hard that you can't just talk about your work? You know, most people just, they have work conversations and it's open and it's, you know, there's no issues. So was that something that was a struggle for you? Like, what were your feelings about that? Because the main point of the field is to understand and be able to relate to what the client is experiencing as opposed to like the identifying details about themselves, I don't really feel like I need to talk about, okay, well, this lady, you know, she stops here and goes here because the underlying pieces that are going on for her are what we're trying to get at. So if she's been unfortunately through a trauma or if she's suffering with depression, I can talk with colleagues about the presenting depression without ever needing to give identifying information. And that's again, why supervision is important and group supervision is important. And yes, I can't talk about my actual work at home, but when I could bring my kids to see, or when my husband could help me set up for this podcast, right? Those are ways of including my family in the things that we're doing. One of my daughters even says she wants to be a social worker when she's older. So I guess I'm doing something right. But the other one wants to be a teacher because more Barth, you were her teacher. She loved you. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying not to bring that up, but yes, I, I do have a very personal love. Whenever you mention your kids, I'm like, are you talking about Kayla? <laughs> I, I miss her. And that's really special. Thank you for sharing that. So you mentioned throughout this podcast that you always loved learning. That was like kind of what sparked your interest initially, that you were just loved learning about people without even knowing necessarily where it was going to take you. And for somebody who is similar to you and, you know, is kind of trying to explore the field isn't sure if they want to go into it. Is there any learning at this point that you can recommend, whether it be a podcast or a book or anything that could maybe get somebody's foot in the door or just a tip advice for somebody who is exploring the field, is interested, but, you know, wants to kind of get a broader sense of what it's all about? 
The best advice that I could give is go speak to people in the field. Make an appointment. If you have to pay, pay. But there are many therapists that are, I've met with so many people for no pay just to help them understand more about the field. I have Kara Satov to the people that helped me when I was deciding. Speak to people in the field, in every aspect of the field. And that will give you an idea of what the day-to-day is really like. And if it's something that feels like it could be worth it for you and something that you're interested in. And don't just go by where they are in the field right now. You know, 15 years looks very different than when I started, but here are the whole journey. But if the end goal is what you want, then see if you think you can make the journey there. Beautifully said. So now in the very beginning, you mentioned that you're hoping the whole world will heal, Merz Hashem, and you would like to do some other things. So I would love now to ask you, what are some of your you know future dreams and aspirations? Okay, good. So Merz Hashem, when Hashem really blesses our whole nation with peace and serenity in every way, emotionally and physically, I want to be a crossing guard outside of an elementary school. <laughs> My kids <laughs> left. They're going to be horrified if they hear about I love that concept, again, of caring, helping people cross the street safely and connecting. Good morning. How are you? How'd the test go yesterday? And just being able to, I don't mind the cold. I'll dress really warm. I'll get some steps in. <laughs> That's definitely somewhere I'm headed, um, maybe in my retirement. And the other thing that I, I dabble in is bagging groceries, because to me, it's the same idea of connecting with people and on the move, meeting many people, learning throughout the day about different people. Rebecca Jeraslam is a licensed clinical social worker currently working in private practice in Five Towns, New York. Rebecca, it was a pleasure having you on today. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us on Career Forum. If you've enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to like, subscribe, and share it with your friends so that we can continue to provide quality information that helps you make informed decisions about your future. To explore possible career options, to speak to a career advisor, or to learn more about Sarah Schneer, please visit our website at www.sarasch.com or call us at 718-633-8557, extension 37, and discover how we can help you achieve your career goals.